0: This is Real Talk, Real Solutions. I'm your host, Ginger Gadsden. I'm joined once again by our producer, Tiffany Brown. Tiffany, thank you for joining us again. As we celebrate Juneteenth, we look back at how far we've come. And we also look ahead at how far we have to go as a nation. And we celebrate those who have worked to get results. And that includes our very special guest today, Civil Rights Leader Colonel Herman Cole. Colonel Cole, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure to all be right, here. All right, so you marched with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., served our country for decades in the Air Force, and still continue to work in our community today. First of all, I want to say thank you very much for your service to our thank nation. You so much. And we appreciate that. But please tell us a little bit about what it was like to march with Dr. King and
1: what that experience was like.
0: Because I, I can't even imagine. When I read that, that is so amazing.
1: Well, to have the opportunity, and this was when I was in high school, mm-hmm. okay, uh, you had to sign a disclaimer that said that any, if anyone said anything to you, if anyone spat on you, if anyone hit you, that you would not retaliate, mm-hmm. and if you did, you would not be able to join the marches again. And we had frequent marches. Uh, and, and I'm from Charleston, South Carolina. We had frequent marches. And just a, an aside story is, my father told me that I couldn't march. Hmm. And the rationale behind me not marching was, my father was a plumber. He had a lot of white clients. Hmm. His name and my name are the same. Every time they would arrest somebody, the names would appear in our local paper. Consequently, he was concerned that it would affect his business. However, being a young, rebellious teenager, I marched anyway. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it was, uh, it was really something else to have that opportunity to be out there. And this continued on with me uh, to college. Mm-hmm. And as you can imagine, the 60s in Alabama was a little bit different. Now being at Tuskegee, which was a majority black community uh, made a difference, but if you went anywhere else, it became different. It became very different, the name calling and those kinds of things. So it was was a difficult time. And I want to revert back to my childhood. As a, in Charleston, in South Charleston. Charleston. Mm-hmm. As a child in Charleston, I saw the Ku Klux Klan come out and burn crosses in front of my neighbor's homes. This was scary. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, and, you know, I would see this, and in my mind, I was like, man, you know, you. You lived in a black community, you never had any real contact with white people, so consequently, you were almost like in a in a ball, and mm. you couldn't get out of that ball well, my 26 year military career and why I went in the military when I was in third grade, Mont was a, a elementary school teacher, and basically they would plan trips to Charleston Air Force Base. Mm-hmm. So I tagged along one Saturday, and we went out to Charleston Air Force Base, and I saw blacks and whites getting along, which was something in 1953 and 1954 was not something you saw in a local community. You're in the deep south, you're in the deep south. Brought up in the segregated south. Went to segregated high schools, segregated college. So basically, I go there, and I see military pilots that are black, and I see military officers. So, in my mind as a child, I'm like, that's exactly what I wanna do. I wanna go in the Air Force because I like the lifestyle. And you, as soon as you leave the base, it's a different story. It's a it's totally different story. Okay, okay,
0: so this is the thing that just jumps out right at me as you say that and why representation matters so much because you had never seen that model before yet you saw it that day on the base
1: and then you did it absolutely (laughs) And, and and it's amazing to me sometimes when i think back on it that i actually did it yeah because when i was in the process of uh going to college uh there were two things that college had to have one is air force rotc okay and the other was that i could major in architecture And uh, luckily, I ended up getting a scholarship to Tuskegee, which had both. But at the time, the Citadel and my high school shared a fence. Oh, wow. I could not go to the Citadel. I could not go to the University of South Carolina, Clemson, any of those schools within the state. So I was limited on where I could go to school. But I jumped at the idea that I could go and, you know, I but my parents always instilled in me it's not if you're going to college it's you are going to college because my parents didn't graduate from college Mm -hmm. my father was a plumber but they instilled in me that i needed to go to college and that in my work life i had to be better than the white person to make it if my resume and their resume were the same, they would get it, so I had to be better. So that was instilled in me from the time I was a small child. Absolutely, it's similar in my household
2: and you're telling me the experience that you had as a child that was completely different. You're looking at going to college at at a time where it's not even integrated yet in your high school, you're graduating out of a situation like that, but you're telling me even before that you're You're marching with MLK. Did you realize at that time that you were going to be a part of the change that we see today? What was that like in your head at the time? Hell no, I didn't realize that.
1: I did not realize that at all. You know, I was was caught up in the moment. I could say I was doing something great. But as a teenager, that's not the thoughts that are on your mind. So I did it because all my friends were doing it. We would meet in a church and then we would march downtown and the slur words that we would get. I mean, it was it was pretty bad, but you realize that you could get that thick skin because you've done it a number of times.
0: Yeah, but still, there had to be something in you, not just wanting to follow the crowd, because to have a teen say, people are gonna spit on you, people are gonna hit you, people are going to say awful things to you that you cannot unhear, and yet you did it anyway. So what is it in you, Colonel Cole, that makes you that person
1: I don't know I I think it was the way my parents treated me the things they did the things they said to me the exposures that they tried to make sure that I had although we were not wealthy in no shape or form you know but I've always felt I mean even in elementary school I was a president of my (laughs) elementary school (laughs) class I was a president of my senior class I've always felt that I have a lot to offer, Mm -hmm. and I was willing, I've always felt like I could give myself for those things, Mm -hmm. you know? And I just felt like I could do it, I needed to do it, and it was my contribution to society. And I don't know if I went through that complete thought process as a teenager, but I used to feel good when I did it. And yeah. it's like volunteering. I do a lot of volunteer work. And people say, "Why do you do volunteer work?" So you're so good, you're such a humanitarian." I'm like, "Do you realize I do volunteer work because it makes me feel good." Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Absolutely. The outcome is good. Sure. But it makes me feel good to be able to do it.
0: Everyone gets something from it. Everyone gets something from it. Sometimes well,
1: I think I might get more maybe. than the But other that's other great. That's, you know, you're mm-hmm. supposed to do it. You know, right. you're
0: supposed to do it. Do you feel like these all these years later you starting as a child, trying to make a difference in this world. And as we look at Juneteenth, and now it's a a holiday, you know, a day of reflection. Mm -hmm. Do you think we've done enough?
1: Uh, No, I don't. And that's back to in 2019, August of 2019, I got completely fed up. And recognizing the fact that, you know, I was a 74-year-old man then, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and I was like, I participated in the civil rights movement in the 60s and 70s. I did all I could in the Air Force for equality and those kinds of things, and now all of a sudden I see us reverting back to the 50s and 60s. So I said, I can't let this happen. So I formed this Humanity Task Force my mindset on it was to put nine white people, nine black people, and we try to get in the community, not in your face, but try to give you an understanding. Let the white people understand where we're coming from as mm-hmm. black folk, and let the black folk understand where the white people are coming from. Mm-hmm. To that end, I had the mayor, police chief, and I had, you know, prominent, I even had two high school students on it what do these meetings look like when you are all getting together meetings sometimes we have some real hard discussions that and when you you have to imagine that if we have the police chief in there and he's a friend of mine he's a good guy but you know he's looking from a different viewpoint than we are I mean the people that I I don't know how a cop makes it without having psychiatric help somewhere along the line because you see dirtbags day in and day out. And how do you turn that switch to now be a regular person? But I'm saying we've had strong discussions with the police chief, and it's kind of after almost two years, it's brought it together. We actually had a month ago a presentation on critical race theory. Mm. We sponsored that. My humanitarian task force sponsored it along with the Harry T. and Harriet Moore Center. Yes. Right. And we had probably a 100 people attend that. That's wonderful. Which was, the the presenter was from Flagler College. He was excellent. And I thought it was good to have a white person come in and talk about CRT. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he did, and he did a fantastic job. So. I saw change back then and you know the military is kind of a microcosm of what the world is. But the military tends, because you live together, Mm -hmm. you live next door to people, Mm -hmm. you work with them, you play with them, you get a better understanding. Mm -hmm. So consequently we don't get that in our cities. Because our cities become very polarized. Yeah, they're very. We have the black community. Yeah, we have the white yeah. community. In the
0: military, you get to live next to people who don't look like you, so you get a, you understand. Oh, they're just like me. Yeah, or they like the same things and I like. Kind of form groups. Look like me.
1: I went to Vietnam, and had come from a segregated, completely segregated environment. Okay, high school, college, the whole thing. All of a sudden, I go to Vietnam. I'm in a huge with a bunch, hooch is the place you stay, okay? With a bunch of white guys, you know? And I'm like, hmm, okay. So, did I feel inferior? Yeah, I did. Because all of these guys went to like Air Force Academy, MIT, and they said, where'd you go to school? I said, I went to Tuskegee. But, at no point, that I not feel that I had the knowledge to do what I needed sure, to do. Absolutely. But you know, it's, it's sort of overpowering when you've not been in that environment at all.
0: It's always hard when you're the only.
1: I go on the big Air Force base in Vietnam. I'm a first lieutenant. I am the only black officer on that base. Yeah. I have sat on 35 court-martials. Why? Herman, have you sat on (laughs) 35-foot modules? Because you were it. You were the only one there, and they needed that representation. Tell me a little bit about that process.
2: If I can just share a little bit about myself. I talked to my dad. He's Mm -hmm. in the Navy. Mm -hmm. He was, excuse me. He uh, passed uh, about a year and a half ago. Mm -hmm. So he talked to me about wanting to make chief. He was a chief petty officer, Mm -hmm. and he said he felt that he had to act a certain way. They expected him to be somebody that he wasn't, that he didn't want to be untrue to himself. Did you feel any of that pressure? Did you feel like there was something that was, that you were being asked to be somebody other than than yourself?
1: You know, I don't really feel like I was. That's great. I felt very comfortable and it could have been because I was an officer. I've got all kinds of good examples here, okay? (laughs) When I was in Vietnam, now, I was green as grass when I went there because I went straight from graduate school as a first lieutenant mm-hmm. to Vietnam. I had a chief master sergeant, which is an E9, mm-hmm. top NCO rank, that worked for me. Treated me like I had fallen off the Christmas tree. I was this the best thing since sliced bread. And he was from Mississippi, by the way. Oh. So I had some of the young black troops come to me and they said, you know, LT, Chief is real prejudice. I'm like, what? I said, I can't believe that. They said, he, they said, he gets drunk at night and goes around the dormitory and is in this and in that and wow. you know. And I'm like, here I am, been on this base for like two months. Yeah. And First Lieutenant, yeah. I'm just not, I didn't really know how I should handle that, so I went down to the barracks one night, kinda incognito, and sure enough, these guys were right. So I went to my boss, who was a full colonel, and I said, hey, this is what I noticed. I said, I don't have enough experience to know how to handle this. I said, but we got to do something Mm. because it's affecting the guys. And he did.
0: Hmm. Wow.
1: He did. 1970, white 06, he took care of it.
0: But you said something. You spoke up. You could have easily said, you know, let's just let it slide like we do everything else. Let's just, it doesn't matter.
1: I had to go out in the field with these guys. (laughs) (laughs) You You know, a a little known story about (laughs) Vietnam, there's a term called fragging. (laughs) Okay. And you probably don't even know what that is. Fragging is when your people kill you. Hmm. Oh. Like, they get that's angry. With you. Fire. That's not friendly fire. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's a that, <laughs> You get, you know, like, it happened a lot in the Army more so than the Air Force. Mm-hmm. But, like, their lieutenants and captains might anger them. <laughs> you got
2: hand grenades and stuff. You
1: just roll a hand grenade wow. in the tent. Wow. That's called frag. So, that's okay. a pretty
2: daring thing for you to have spoken out, but you've pretty much lived your whole life that way. Yeah. So it's kind of <laughs> But, <far>. I, but <laughs> I have,
1: you know, and I and all throughout my military career, I've always been on. Human Relations Council and working with, working with people and trying to make things happen. And I'm not, an, I'm not an in-your-face person. And I think that people tell me that because of the humor that I have, that I can work my way through a lot of situations sure. where I'm not overbearing. And one of the things I tell a lot of people, I said, you know, there's two things I have in my favor. Well, three things. Maybe more than that <laughs> 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 <been> a whole, <laughs> a a whole that. plethora of things yes. but one is i 'm like, well, I used to be five eight I got old i 'm five seven, so i 'm not an overbearing big. kind of guy sure i 'm light skinned mm-hmm. okay i 'm a retired Air Force colonel. when I walk in the room, if they know mm-hmm. that, but i 'm not going to get in your face and, and yeah. so i 'm accepted. So consequently, I can get a lot more done.
2: So it sounds like you've got a lot more to do. I do. You're talking to me that this isn't about a time that you're ready to hang it up and kind of
1: rest. All the more reason I'm running for city council in Titusville. (laughs) How is that going? Well, it's just starting Mm -hmm. and uh, it's going good so far. I have two opponents uh, and uh, I'm just trying to do what I need to do. I feel like I have a whole lot more to give.
0: Sure, but what is it that you think you can offer for people who may not have even heard of you or know that you're running? What is it that you think you have to offer? Well, what I have
1: to offer is, I have a, in Titusville and on the East Coast, there are a lot of problems with the Indian River Lagoon being, having uh, environmental problems, and there's such thing as seagrasses, and that the manatees feed off and Mm -hmm. if you can't get the water fresh the algae will grow grow on top of it and keep the sunlight out yeah no oxygenation manatees die so I'm you know I'm that's a secondary thing that I'm looking for grants because the city can't do it by himself so I'm looking for grants federal grants that will come in and help us clean up the water it's it's not just Brevard County it's Indian river County, it's all, the it's all connected that, yeah. it's, it's all connected, all connected it's you, know. you know
0: when you t- when you start talking about the environment that's so important and people it's like it if it affects us all so mm-hmm. if that's one of the things that you're saying that you are really concerned about no one can be really yeah, mad and, at that yeah and you know i
1: my, my 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 part of my slogan is smart growth and i like it smart i likened smart growth to being something where you uh you got to think about the economic situation where Titusville right now is growing by leaps and bounds mm-hmm. because of SpaceX and Blue Origin and stuff. So you gotta think about the economic aspect of it, but the two can meld together. There is no reason why, because you know, we're worried about what's gonna happen 50 years from now. You know, if it if the groundwater gets infected, you know, Katie sure. barred the door, you know. Yeah. <laughs> There's no yeah. telling what may go on. It, so I'm I'm looking at it from that. Perspective, and you know, with my leadership and management, and I'm not bragging. I'm a retired Air Force Colonel. I was chairman of the medical parish medical center board for eight years. I've been on the board for 20. I'm the past president of YMCA board. I'm just a board person. All these board. (laughs) Somebody, my son told me, said, "You on all these boards? How much do you get paid?" (laughs) not very much zero exactly but that
0: that must mean you just have a passion for it and you know what i appreciate is that you share your message with people And, and just circling back to juneteenth because we have a lot of young people who will not appreciate uh the shoulders they stand on Right, they just assume they were born and plopped. This is how it's always been. Mm-hmm. People didn't march. People didn't get spit on. People didn't get kicked, killed, or other things. Right. So when you, uh, if you have a message for the younger generation and what they need to do, you know, because you can only do so much and you've done a lot. What do you say?
1: Well, you know, we talk about Juneteenth. I was in my late 30s, almost 40 years old, when I first heard about Juneteenth. I was stationed at Los Angeles Air Force Station and they were having a Juneteenth celebration. I'm like, what the hell is Juneteenth? I didn't know what it was, had never heard of it. So that was back in the eighties. But what I try to do in some of the mentoring things that I do, like going to the high school or going to the middle school and talking to the kids, I try to inspire them. But I keep telling people, I said, the kids look at me, I look like their granddaddy. You know, they don't want to listen to me. So what I've tried to do is develop younger people to do these things. So I'm standing back here and I got, I've got a good friend who was, uh, who's an engineer at, at Boeing in Titusville who graduated from Tuskegee and he's like 29 years old. I, as a matter of fact, I did. I married he and his wife I'm an ordained minister. Oh, great. Right. Okay, okay. got my hand on a lot of things. You know. so, no, a lot of tentacles. But, you know, I'm grooming him because he's 29, and he can go out, and they will listen to him more than they're going to listen to this old fart here. You know, even though I, I have things that I can tell them sure. and try to inspire them, I've got to be around them more than just an hour to do that. I've been working with the Boys and Girls Club at uh, in Titusville. Mm-hmm. I, I've given them presentations on the Tuskegee Airmen and stuff like that to try to inspire them to let them know that there's a lot more out there. Yeah. There's a lot more out there and but we've got to be willing to want to do it and you know I think that if we could get our young folk into volunteerism a little bit more I think they would get a better feel for it. Like, like, what am I going to get out of it? Well, it's not what you're going to get out of it. It's what you're going to do for your community.
0: Yeah, but consequently, consequently, they get something out of it. Like you're saying, you probably get more from volunteering than you actually are Mm -hmm. contributing, but it's a win-win. Education
2: and exposure and Mm -hmm. things that will, just like you did when you were a kid, going and seeing the Air Force Base, they're able to have this education, this exposure, and then be changed and help change the I was going
1: through one of my... I'm anal, okay, so I got photo albums from the time I was a baby to now, and I save everything, I got them all categorized so my kids can throw them away when uh, mm-hmm. when I die, you know? Because uh, they will throw I don't, them away, I don't you know? don't I'm like, yeah, they're gonna throw them away. And I came across an article that was in the paper when my I was a junior in high school, and I was raising money for the March of Dimes, and we would stand on the street corner and beg for money, and my high school, Burke High School in Charleston, South Carolina, which was a black high school, we raised more money for the March of Dimes. And I, I look—I'd almost forgotten I had done that. But I'm saying getting involved in volunteerism early, I think is what kids need to do. And I think it will inspire them because you realize what you're doing in the community and how you're helping people in the community. And that, that's the whole thing. It makes you feel good. It gives you a better outlook on life. You know. Yeah. Makes you smile. Oh. Well, you <laughs> make us smile. Day, you make us smile, that's <laughs> yes. for sure. I so appreciate you because
0: you're willing to be. A guiding hand behind the younger generation because most people want the spotlight on themselves but you understand that handing that baton you have to pass the baton right and so that's what you're doing by being the guiding force to the 29 year old to Mm -hmm. the young to the boys and girls club because that is the next generation and they are going to have to carry Mm -hmm. that torch
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: we appreciate you yeah thank you you so much I'm glad Uh, somebody appreciates you. (laughs) Somebody so needs to go out to the car and tell, tell my wife that. that. She knows. <laughs> she knows. 55 years <laughs> oh of marriage, I'm sure God. she knows. Yeah, she thank knows more yeah. than she needs Oh, help. my gosh. We wish you many more happy years together. And thank you so much for sharing your time. Okay, thank and you. And thank you for joining us for this episode of Real Talk, Real Solutions. I'm your host, Ginger Gadsden. We'll see you next time. Okay, guys. So what I wanted to say to you the entire